There was a time before caller ID when the telephone would ring and it could be anybody. The only way to solve the mystery was to pick up the phone and say, hello. Picking up the phone without knowing who was on the other end could ignite a chain reaction. It could be somebody you love, it could be a telemarketer, or in one fateful case, the calls were coming from inside the house. Portrait of a Social Worker Siriani is a telephone counselor helping the broken when she herself is in pain. One night her telephone rings and it's not just a call, but a call to action. An insidious caller with the power to control her mind has an agenda of hypnotic seduction. Will she become the receiver? Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I am your host. There is a service I can render, so call me Sammy Yunan. Welcome Kevin Campbell to the show. He's here to talk about his psychological horror short receiver, as well as explaining how he lights up Star Trek Discovery and the unusual object stored in his fridge. You want to guess what it might be? Hey, Sammy. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Uh, you've been making the rounds. You've been doing quite a number of interviews. It's great to see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Likewise, it's it's uh, it's always interesting because there's 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 always this you know sort of fallow period between when you finish a film and are going like gangbusters to get the thing done, and then by the time you actually get it released, and so you end up having a like couple of months where it feels like you're not really doing much of anything, and then you just start right back up when you're uh, when you're uh, releasing it. So it's um, yeah, it's it's. It's nice that there's the interest out there. It's certainly kind of kind of rewarding for me. Yeah, and it's interesting too because it's like you're done with the film, right? So you've you've had this experience, you've been living with it for a little while, and then you move on, right? Like it's, yeah. like it's another relationship, right? You're working on something else or you're doing whatever, you have a day job. Uh, and then now people are like, yo, remember that movie that you made like a little while ago? Can we talk about that now? It's new to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it, it it can be kind of a uh, it can be kind of a strange feeling to go through. In fact, about a month ago or so, we were uh, we were doing some work on um, on some some BTS videos for the um, for the film that we're getting ready to release, and uh, it involved me doing some remote interviews of the like the actors and and our key crew members and stuff. It had got, gotten pushed off because of COVID and things like that, so it was now. You know, we were recording these things like a year after we shot the film. And it's funny because we're all getting together to talk about this stuff. And it's like the beginning of these interviews with them was about everybody kind of being reminded like, oh, yeah, what was it like going through that? Because it was a year ago that we that we shot this. It was a year ago that, you know, we, we were doing all this stuff that we're trying to reminisce about now, you know, so. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, you will reminisce, and I will ask you present tense questions, and we will hang <laughs> out, and we will have fun. You ready to roll? Yeah, I think so. And I want to start with the, uh, what I think is kind of the obvious, which is, did you really make a movie clearly set in Toronto and have a character named Drake? And did you think you really could get away with that? <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, it was only after we had the script written that uh, that somebody made that connection for us because uh, there was it, it was no shade being thrown uh, to, uh, to 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 Drake that we named the villain of the uh, of the film that it was completely separate reason it was only like when we started casting the film that somebody asked us that question and my uh, my co writer Luke and I were like oh yeah we'd never actually thought of that yes. <laughs> All right. All right. So we've established that there is no animosity towards Drake, as you said, because Drake is kind of like the, the dubious character in this uh, short film. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, I, I promise there's no shade being thrown at, at Toronto's Drake. Um, in fact, I worked on one of his music videos like like about 15 years ago. So. Uh, so, yeah, no hating. OK, I promise. All right. Uh, now that we've got that established, uh, I want to reach into the past before we get to the present. In okay. high school, is it correct that you did movie reviews for CBC Radio? That's right. Yeah, this was. Um, well, I grew up in in Prince Edward Island, so um, so CBC Charlottetown does is where like 
PEI's sort of uh, edition of CBC Radio 1 is is set. And their afternoon show is called CBC Main Street. And, uh, yeah, for, for a period of about a year in my senior year of high school, I was a community film reviewer for uh, for Main Street. Yeah, kind of like Almost Famous. I suppose a little bit. Um, I, I certainly wasn't trying to, to, to emulate that film. I was just a really big film nerd and discovered that somebody was willing to pay me to talk about films on the radio who wasn't going to take that up in my position. <laughs> Fair enough. So then as a CBC radio movie reviewer, how would you describe your own short film receiver? Oh, that's tough because that's because that implies a level of objectivity about the film and the process that I can't possibly have about it. Like I've been I've been living with receiver and with the with the characters of the film for like about 3 years now since we started writing it. So so I genuinely don't think I can answer that because I feel like there is just so much emotional baggage for me that's caught up in the film. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could give a I don't think I could give a review. Any review I could give of the film would basically be a review of my 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 own emotional state, <laughs> you know, 3 years ago when we started writing it. So then how would you describe the film because there's a lot that's going on uh in it. Like even though it's a short film, it's quite packed and dense and layered. Absolutely, yeah. So well, probably the simplest way of describing Receiver is that it's a short psychological horror film that follows Suryani, an idealistic and overtaxed Sri Lankan Canadian social worker, on a single terrible night at her job. Um, Suryani has built her life entirely around empathy and service to others, uh, but always at the expense of her own desires and needs. So the film asks the question, who's really going to be there to protect Suryani tonight when she's confronted by an insidious caller with the power to control her mind? So it's a bit of a chamber horror film that takes into consideration issues of uh, hypnosis and the commodification of empathy and uh, issues of toxic masculinity. So it's like, it's kind of a loaded project that's, that's, that's probably got a lot of interesting social issues on its mind but it's also just seeking to kind of creep people out psychologically mm-hmm. so the, the issues you're talking about um the empathy toxic masculinity it's interesting that you chose uh your main character to be a social worker like a social work telephone counselor rather than say a phone sex hotline operator for example right because there's a there's a lack of humanity in both positions right it just becomes a transaction like give me what i want um, and we even hear that in the beginning of Receiver with this kind of really agitated woman who's like battling drugs. Was your main character always supposed to be like a social worker? Absolutely, yeah. The The way into this story actually came through my girlfriend, Stephanie, who's a social worker. And um, at the time that Luke Higginson, my co-writer, and I were starting to to piece together Receiver in the early days of development, Steph was working as a, a telephone counselor at the time. So through seeing her experiences and getting to hear about them, I got to really see the level of, you know, emotional labor and and empathy that was demanded from both her employers and her clients over the telephone. And the more, you know, Luke and I explored that, the more that idea really kind of to scare us a little bit, the more it presented, you know, fears and dangers that arose from the whole concept of how empathy is commoditized. Because the thing is, that's kind of the bedrock of the modern social work industry. Mm-hmm. You know, the more we commodify someone's empathy, the more that empathy can ultimately be weaponized against them by an unscrupulous person. So as we were floating around these ideas, it became really clear to us that Receiver wanted to be a, a psychological horror film. And when that genre kind of leapt out at us and sort of grabbed us by the throat, we got to looking for the right matching metaphor for these ideas. And that's when we hit a, uh, onto the concept of hypnotic seduction, because the whole thing about hypnosis is that a successful hypnosis subject requires a comparable level of emotional investment to what's expected of coworkers in their day-to-day job. So what you say is absolutely correct, that that, that that kind of relationship is fundamentally more transactional than perhaps in-person social work is because you have this, this, this rather impersonal dividing wall between the social worker and the client. 
I, I think it's more than purely transactional because you still have the social worker who's bringing all the same skill set, all the same sort of requisite empathy uh, to, to the game that they would be bringing if they were in person there. So it's, it's a complex relationship. And to us, that seemed to really open the door to, uh, to play with some of these really interesting social ideas, but specifically through the lens of, you know, hypnotic manipulation and psychological horror. And when you're talking about hypnotic manipulation, are you referencing, for example, like the uh, the pickup game and like the that kind of dating uh, approach to like quote unquote capturing women? A little bit. So, um, so the thing is, there there was now. I, I know the strength of the, the 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 pickup community and its 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 popularity at large um, has kind of dwindled in the last you know sort of five years or so. But there was a, a stream of the of the pickup community uh, when it was sort of at its height about a decade, a decade and a half ago, that dealt specifically with ideas of hypnotic seduction, which is using uh, using neuro linguistic processing tools and and uh, hypnotic suggestion and things like that to try and bring specificity to their version of of the pickup game. So that is what we ended up doing a lot of research on for, for this, and that's specifically what we were trying to reference in terms of how Drake, the main antagonist who's, who's, um, who's on the phone with Sriani, uh, is, is sort of spinning out his day. It's part of practice for a hypnotic seduction group that he's part of. So then the obvious question then is, is hypnosis real? Does it work? Well, that's ultimately hard for me to answer because the, the answer is, is going to vary quite a lot, uh, depending on how you define hypnosis. Based on my research, and I want to be clear, I've not, I've not dabbled directly in hypnosis. Uh, I've tried to be hypnotized a couple of times in my life by stage hypnotists, you know, the entertainers, mm -hmm. and it never works. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm not a readily uh, hypnotizable subject, I don't <laughs> suppose. Um, but in, in the research that, uh, that we were doing to, to lead up to the writing of Receiver, it seemed pretty clear to us that the way that hypnosis is portrayed in the average film is really not true, right? But that there are some, some fundamental truths that do come out of just knowing how to speak to people and knowing how to, how to you know, push conversations in the direction you want them to go that could ultimately be seen to be accurate on the basis of what some of these hypnosis programs will teach people. So it's not really hypnosis in the sense of, oh, I can teach you to make anybody do anything that you want them to do, because that rather extreme, rather over-dramatized version of hypnosis, I think by and large, is, is the element and the tool of fiction. But, but the idea of people being taught rather simple tools for how to conversationally manipulate people in subtle ways to push conversations in the way that they want to, that is, is definitely truthful. Because the thing is, all of us practice that a, a little tiny bit and oftentimes not even knowing that we're doing it when we have conversations with anybody, right? Conversations themselves, even the most friendly conversations, are fundamentally transactional in one way or another, right? Mm -hmm. Each of us is always trying to sort of express something about ourselves that we want to get across to the other person, whether it's for the sake of expressing it to a third party who happens to be hearing this conversation, uh, as might be the case in, for instance, an interview or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Or if it's, if it's simply, you know, you and I are having a beer after work and I'm trying to, you know, and, and I'm trying to lead in the direction to tell a, a funny anecdote from what happened today and, and get you to laugh at it. You know, mm -hmm. all of those require a certain amount of, conversational navigation and the thing is those tools when you distill them down are, are in large part the tools that that people are taught as part of these hypnosis programs you know and it's a question of how effective they are person to person because some people are going to be better or worse at it the same way that you know you or i or any of a thousand people may be better or worse in in average personal conversation but I think if we're talking about the generalized tools, then then what we could talk about is hypnosis as a form of subtle conversational manipulation is absolutely true. Would you then classify hypnosis as part of that commodification of empathy because you are trying to either manipulate that person or try to get them to do something as we saw in Receiver? Absolutely. And that's, I, I think, 
kind of what we were trying to get across, admittedly very subtly, because, you know, when you're making a 15-minute film, you don't have a huge amount of real estate to front load a lot of thematic concerns. You've got to have kind of a light touch with it. But that's what Luke and I were trying to get across, is the, the point of comparison between what it takes to be, you know, a successful um, subject of hypnosis, be it, be it subtly or, or a little more dramatically in the case of what we're doing in the film, uh, and also the way that, that that empathy, that sort of acceptance uh, of, of the world that your conversational partner is spinning to you is, is kind of the core bedrock of how the modern social work industry has to operate. Is this then also subtly then a, a short about hope as well? Because obviously being a social worker, you're trying to make things better. Uh, you're trying to help people who are either in drugs or negative situations. So there's hope. But at the same time, too, even though it is a commodity, uh, commodification of empathy, the pickup artist, or Drake in this case, he's also kind of like hoping that he scores or that he succeeds in his mission. So is this about hope? I suppose to a certain degree it is, in the sense that, I mean, I, I guess just about any film is, is a little bit about hope if we're talking about personal relationships. For us, I think it was, it was less the concept of hope directly was informing what we were talking about, and more the idea of, of, of balance. If you, want to, if you want to really unpack the core theme that, that we were trying to explore, it's the idea of the necessity of balance within a person's life, that, that Suriani is able to be victimized because her life is so out of balance right now in, in, in favor of investing herself so greatly uh, to help others that she forgets to take care of herself. She forgets her own self-care and ignores the people most important to her in her life for the sake of helping strangers as part of her job. So I think hope probably filters into that a little bit, but the word that we were really using that was informing the direction we wanted to take the film was, was the issue of balance as it could be unpacked from, from Surani's behavior. Yeah, and related to that self-care is that sometimes we also ignore the warning signs, right? Like when we're tired and these kind of things, when we know we should slow down or have a tea or take a nap or whatever it is, we kind of ignore the signs because they're not as always clear as when we're like driving on the highway and it tells you like, you know, Toronto's like 10 kilometers away. Uh, you get clear signs when you're on the highway. In real life, the signs can be a little bit fuzzy and weird. And I want to focus on the um, those classic Instagram balloons, uh, that we kind of see throughout the the film, um, and they're they're the classic ones, right? Which is just like one gold letter, and they usually say. And in this case, they started off saying "Happy Birthday." However, as the film unfolds, though, the message of those balloons changes. Did you get any weird looks for some of the phrases and the words that you requested? No, not really, because well, the thing is to keep in mind is each of those balloons is a distinct letter. So we just ordered several sets of of these. Uh, of these gold balloons and they were put into the order that we needed to spell what we needed on set. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have to, we, <laughs> thankfully we yeah. didn't have to go to a, go to a party shop and order the phrases we needed the balloons to, to spell over the course of the film. Cause uh, yeah, we probably would have gotten some very strange looks at party city. Had we showed up <laughs> yes. demanding party balloons that said careful and shut up and things like that. Yes. So <laughs> yes, I know it doesn't seem like it's a really happy occasion. <laughs> it it probably to an outside party would seem very hinky. Yes. And so what is the process then like to write this? As we kind of talk about these themes, uh, you have this uh, social work telephone counselor in the apartment. Uh, you have these kind of gold balloons with these kind of phrases that are evolving as things go along. And as you mentioned, it's a psychological horror. So what is the process like kind of sit down and write for, for a short like this? Well, I, I think the probably the most important part of, of the writing process for us on Receiver, uh, the us being Luke Higginson and myself, um, is that Receiver actually began as a feature film and is on its way to, to becoming a feature film right now because we're, we're right now working on the, the feature adaptation of it. But as we were putting together the full feature, we both had the idea that the first act of the film could be streamlined and tightened down into a really interesting, uh, rather punchy package that could be photographed as a standalone short film. Mm -hmm. Because because the original concept for Receiver was was mine. I had said I wanted to pursue it as the as the director, and Luke was totally on board with that. And so 
we then sat down when we had the feature outlined, we then sat down, split off the first act and, and just said, okay, if we're going to take this, how do we then distill this into the core that we could, we could get across in, in a film, in a short film that was just going to be the core of the first act. And that ended up getting us a 23 page script that, you know, we were both very proud of and really liked. There was a lot of breadth to it. You, it was all still set within Suriani's apartment, but you saw far more of the apartment. And there was a lot more uh, unpacking of her own emotional baggage and her backstory and her relationship with her boyfriend, Elliot, and her parents. But we got to a point that though we liked the script where it was, I said quite simply, this is basically unfilmable for me in terms of the resources that we are going to have at our disposal because it's going to require too many days to shoot and it's going to take more money than I know we're going to have. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of put my foot down and said, look, if this is going to happen as a short, we need to just like break the back of this thing and figure out, okay, cut everything that's, that's inessential. How do we get this down to a 10-page script? Because that will be filmable for, for what we've got at, at hand. And so we took another couple of months and, uh, and, and basically rebuilt it from scratch from the, uh, from the ground up to like a nine-page script, which is, which is the length of the, of the script that we eventually filmed. And, um, and that was in itself a real interesting process because what it meant was we just had to pick, okay, what are the three or four core issues that we're going to deal with here? How do we take those and how do we streamline or cut everything else around them in order to make this still work. And what that meant was we took a huge amount of the material that was in the text, that being her relationship, Sriani's relationship with Elliot, with her parents, uh, her backstory, her relationship with her boss at, at the, um, at the telephone helpline. And we said, okay, how do we move this all from the text into the subtext? So how do we take this and all of these conversations that we're having, how do we distill them down into you know, moments and objects that she can be interacting with that are just going to hint to the audience of what's going on in her life before the scene begins. And so that's where, you know, Elliot ceases to become a real character and more becomes a bit of a plot point because we're reading a couple of his texts over, over Suriani's cell phone during the film, as opposed to, you know, two conversation scenes that, that, that we had between the two of them in the longer version of the short. So, so it was like this two-step process to kind of get to where we were going. And we kind of ended up doing everything a bit backwards because we had the bigger picture built. And then it was like, okay, how do we forget all that now and, and do it from scratch? Yeah, receiver is like a magic trick. Uh, there's a lot that you're doing as a filmmaker, but the audience is not fully aware of it as a magic trick, right? They're just kind of focused on the card or the handcuffs, but it's your other hand that's kind of behind the scenes making the magic happen. There's a lot of intention and a lot of purpose. Yeah, yeah. And and I think part of what allowed us to do that, which is frankly, I think the only way that we could, we could distill so much down into such a small package of like a nine-page script was, you know, for me, sitting there with my, my director's hat on saying, Okay, the way that this is going to work is exactly as you said. We've got to we've got to allow the audience to come in unawares. We've got to allow the audience to not fully understand what's going on right off the bat, and that was actually a huge benefit because what that meant was we could then restructure the film around placing the audience exactly in Suriani's emotional point of view. Because the whole thing is Suriani doesn't know what's going on for the first half of the film, right? Mm. So. It was a great way for us to like to, to push the audience into uh, very much into Suriani's headspace, while still allowing us to be kind of circumspect with how much information we were releasing uh, to to the audience, because it was okay to leave them in the dark for a little bit, because the main character is in the dark, and that kind of allowed us to be, I think, really efficient with how we doled out so much of the of the backstory and the subtext for the film, which frankly is the only way we could have gotten it down to the length that it, that it was and still sort of have it work, you know? So did that then kind of prompt the tone of the film as well? Because one of the flaws of many feature films is that they get the tone wrong or they get the, the mood wrong, right? And then did that, once you kind of had those pieces in place, did that kind of establish the tone and the vibe of the, the piece you were making? Well, I think in the broadest strokes, the tone was already probably established by the time we had written the longer version of of, of the short script, but I think you're absolutely correct that that 
knowing the, the kind of dance, or to use your term, knowing the kind of magic trick we were going to try and play out on this, ultimately allowed us to refine our initial ideas about tone and about mood. So there probably just would not have been the way to get all the pieces in play until we had reached a point that we knew sort of what kind of film this was going to be, you know, um, and, and how much we wanted to leave the audience in the dark, how psychological we wanted the horror to be. All those things were kind of interconnected. And until we'd reached the point that we'd figured all that out, I, I think it would have just been difficult, if not impossible to like really precisely kind of set the tone we were going for. So in terms of then actually making this film, I want to switch now from like the ethereal to the physical. Like when Spike Jones was shooting her, a movie about a guy interacting with a human, like human-like AI, basically, uh, he had an actress off camera interacting with Joaquin Phoenix uh, so that they could do the interplay. Uh, did you do something similar with your characters? Because this is, for the most part, it's just one character in an apartment, but she's interacting with people on the phone. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's pretty much exactly what we did. Uh, knowing really early on that this was, you know, in the most superficial way of describing it, that this was going to be a one-hander scene. There was going to be one character. Sirianni is in every frame of the film, uh, and we are going to be, like, at her side the entire time. She's only one on camera, and everybody else she's interacting with, both benign and, and, and bad, uh, we're all going to be heard over the telephone knowing that, I had said, okay, I need to find some way to, 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 to help whichever actress I'm going to be casting in the lead role to help her, you know, ground and realize as much of this performance, as much of this interplay uh, as, as she can. Uh, because, of course, for any members of your audience who don't know, um, you know, the standard way of shooting sort of a one-sided telephone conversation scene is that you would have your on-camera character uh, or performer mm -hmm. uh, that would be fed their conversational partner's lines uh, from typically the script supervisor on set. Uh, and then once you've got that shot, then at some period down the road when you're into post, uh, you'd bring in the, you know, the scene partner at that point, the off-screen character, into a sound studio. They'd be recorded separately, and then the two voices would be jo joined up in post-production. But I had said, well, the best way of getting like a really rich performance from an, an actor is going to be to give them something to react to in, at any given moment. And I'd said, well, we need to have all the actors on set live working together if this is going to work. So when we got to shooting the film, uh, we had a, a, a miniaturized sort of <laughs> sound booth mm -hmm. that was set up just just off camera, um, where all of the off-screen actors would be would be performing, uh, so they'd be just out of sight of of Tahere, who um, who plays Sriani. Um, they could be recorded live, but they would, in the end, have some kind of direct interaction, if only through their voices being live and and interacting and in the uh, in the moment. And that really helped. I think I think it really helped drive home just the, the interplay and the, the, the precision of how, you know, any of these actors were playing together and how any of those relationships were spinning out. It feels real time. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're present. Yeah, totally. And that's, that's exactly what we were going for. And I think it's, I think it's there. I think it, I think it adds something kind of ineffable to the, to the process because I don't think anybody's going to see receiver and say that it feels like we used a huge amount of ADR or dubbed in any of the actors. Like it feels like everybody's right there because, in a sense, they kind of were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's why I picked up on it. That's why I referenced her. Because when, I, when you're watching her, it seems like they're doing it all in the same room, right? And then, so I Googled it. I'm like, yeah, they are in the same room, right? Like, you yeah. can kind of tell. Uh, it's the same thing like just any other regular scene in any movie. When the two actors are clearly in the room and they're just kind of talking, it's, yeah, because, yeah, they're in the same room and they're talking. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 there's a, there's a, a layer of communication both verbal and nonverbal that are in operation when any of us are, are together and physically interacting or, or at least verbally interacting in real time. And, um, and that's the kind of thing that, that not to say that had it been shot in a more conventional way that, that our performers could not have achieved that because uh, I was very lucky. Uh, we were working with some great actors on the film and I know that they could have, they could have brought their A game to, to that process as well. 
but it just would have required them to do more work. And for me as a director, forcing an actor to do a lot of technical work to get to a point that they're telling the emotional truth in their performance, like my whole job is to take away as many of those barriers as I can so they can just be there and be real in the moment, you know? And so what about the vintage look and feel of the the movie? Because it, it's got a, like a Brian De Palma type quality to it. Did you... <laughs> is, is that accurate or why are you laughing? Like... Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's really interesting that you bring up De Palma because, uh, because De Palma was basically a couple of Brian De Palma films from the, um, from, uh, the late 70s, early 80s, most notably Blowout. Yeah. Uh, were, were, uh, that was one of our major sort of visual touchstones for how the film was put together. The other one was, uh, was Robert Altman's film Images. Okay. Uh, and those were the two. Those were the two films that I that I gave to my director of photography and my production designer when we started to work on the film, and basically said, "This is what I've got in mind. Mm-hmm. This is what this should feel like." So a lot of the visual strategies that we ended up using when we were putting the film together ended up fundamentally being inspired by a lot of uh, of that sort of off kilter psychological thriller cinema from the late seventies and early eighties. I use Brian De Palma because that's what it felt like, especially the vintage look and feel. But also, it's kind of got um, a rear window type quality to it. Like you're almost <laughs> eavesdropping uh, on this woman, you know what I mean? As she's kind of doing counseling stuff. Obviously, you're in the apartment, you're seeing all this stuff. Uh, but it does feel like you're kind of like eavesdropping. You're invading her privacy in a sense. Yeah, totally. In fact, one of the one of the ideas that I gave to my director of photography, John Tarver, was, was the idea that uh, – because uh, – the other thing that that um, I hope you're picking up on when you're when you're noticing the, the sort of vintage quality of the film is that uh, the film was shot entirely on old lenses, like quite old in some cases. Ah, that's the magic trick again. <laughs> so that's that's part of it. Um, the lenses we were using, David, the the oldest lens we were using dates from like 1971 or 72, uh, and the rest of them are from like late 70s, early early 80s. And uh, our workhorse was was a 12 to one zoom uh, that's from like 1979, I believe. And uh, I had said to my DOP, like, I want to, I want to do a lot of in-scene zooming. Um, and I want this to feel very voyeuristic and theatrical in terms of the way that the, that, that we use the, yeah. the zoom uh, on the lenses. Like I, and I said, I, I want us to almost personify the camera, except at a couple of key spots where we really kind of break that trend on purpose but I want us to personify the character as if it is somebody who, as if it's like a third party in the very back corner of her apartment that's just like watching her as mm-hmm. these as these scenes happen. So it's like so we're using zooms to get this to get this sense of like a distant presence, like kind of like what you alluded to, like a peeping tom sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I wanted as much like voyeurism to come out of that because, of course, though though Drake can't see Suriani, his whole relationship with her is is exceptionally voyeuristic, even though it is only between their voices. Mm-hmm. And that seemed like a great way of, of, again, sort of putting the audience within Suriani's emotional point of view of feeling like there is this presence in there that is watching her, that is, that is you know, setting her life off kilter this, this one evening at her work, you know? Yeah, that explains then the vintage that I was talking about, because yeah, it's the camera movements and the way that it, I couldn't articulate it properly, but yeah, that's what it is. Cause that's old school, like seventies and eighties, the way that like the camera is almost invasive in a way, you know what I mean? Sometimes now with some modern films and even modern horror films, the camera is kind of like this reluctant spectator. Like it's just watching the kid get slashed or killed or whatever in the movie, but it doesn't really kind of get involved. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Whereas you are kind of like, you're putting your nose into everything. Like, let's go over here. Let's see her make some coffee. Let's see her do these kind of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, and I think part of it, too, was was the use of, like, we used, you know, given given the, the, the scale of the film and the scope of it, we used for a short, like, quite a lot of, like, high and low angle shots, which they they ratchet up the cost in both time and money to achieve. So oftentimes a lot of people who are making shorts or making independent films don't don't do a lot of that high and low angle shooting. But I was very adamant that that's another thing that we could we could use to sort of just create this sort of off kilter environment uh, and also, you know, reference some of those film touchstones uh, like the work of De Palma or like the work of Altman, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I haven't seen the Altman one. I got that'll be my homework uh, after we wrap <laughs> this up. 
but just related to that kind of vintage feel and old school film, there's something special that you keep in your fridge next to your ketchup. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to share what well, that is and what that means to you? Sure, absolutely. So I've got a, I've got a, I've got a hundred foot daylight load of uh, of black and white sixteen millimeter film uh, that's still unopened that I uh, that I that I keep in my fridge. Um, it's just for me. I don't know. It's a nice reminder of where I started because when I started making films uh, in film school like 20 years ago, we were of course shooting and editing on film. It was, you know, there were video cameras, but they were uniformly terrible. So everybody was still shooting on film. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was, you know, an expensive proposition to shoot on film because you had to pay for processing. You had to pay for, you know, a lot of other steps uh, that have been rendered almost completely redundant now in the world in the uh, in the world of digital technology, but there was something to me really exciting because of those challenges because of the fact that you didn't know if you got anything until you got your film back from the lab because you had to plan everything out to such minute detail because you knew well I can only afford you know three four hundred foot magazines of film to, mm-hmm. to shoot this project. So I've got to figure out how many shots I, I need to figure out, uh, you know, what I can cut, how many takes I'm allowed of each potential shot and setup, because if you ran out of film, your shooting was just done if you couldn't afford anymore, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, it's not a matter of just emptying off a card and, and, then, and then, you know, just give yourself, give your DIT 20 minutes and then you can be shooting again. It's like, no, you're done. Yeah. So... It was, it was in a lot of ways, and not to sound like a Luddite about it, but it was a, it was a different, in some ways, much more precise way of working because you couldn't just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. Uh, and I think that that's something that, that kind of got deep down in the way that I work because I tend to always come to set knowing, <laughs> knowing that I'm going to have to cut things. That, that's always how it works. There's never enough time and never enough money. So I try and come to set with plan A, a plan B, and a plan C that I've worked out in advance so I can figure out with my script supervisor at any moment, like, okay, I'm going to cut this shot because we don't need it. It's not absolutely essential. It would be nice to have, but I'm going to lose this other shot down the road that we definitely do need if I don't cut this shot right now. you know. And so I guess that was my long-winded way of basically saying that Mm-hmm. I like I, I like keeping the film with me, even though I'm never gonna I'm never gonna pop the the lid on that film. I mean, the the roll itself is probably 18 years old now, so I'm not even sure it's properly usable. But I like keeping it with me. Kind of reminds me of my 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 roots and ro- reminds me of like why you always gotta have an escape plan when you uh, when you come to set mm-hmm. because it used to be that you you always needed it. Now it's just like it's just a good way of working and it's nice to be reminded that I should never lose that, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. It's the same thing too for like larger uh, budgeted features, for example, where like they know they can fix a lot of things with like CGI and computers and stuff, right? So they'll just kind of shoot it and if there's something a little bit wrong or a little bit off, they're like, yeah, it's fine. We can fix it in post, fix it in post. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in reality, we did a bit of that Mm -hmm. on this. This was actually the first film of mine that had any amount of digital uh, visual effects. So, so I finally got to play in a couple of the toolboxes of fixing tiny things that, uh, that, that we didn't have time to fix on certain shots on set. And I can, in some ways, I can completely understand why, why filmmakers kind of love being able to say, okay, that's not a big deal. I can deal with that when we get into post. Because if you're working with smart visual effects artists and inventive people, there is such a huge range of things that you can do uh, that even five years ago would have been unthinkable at 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 at, at, at an independent scale, you know. Yeah, correct. So, so I also don't want to sound like I'm denigrating some of the tools that we've got now in the modern world because I'd be a hypocrite if I did. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know, I see the value in those too. Um, so I guess my point is just it, it becomes even easier to use those tools and to fix things in post, which is a cliche that I know post-production people hate, hate <laughs> being said, post, yeah. but like it becomes easier to do that if you come to set with a game plan, you know, mm-hmm. and then it's like, you're getting the best of both worlds. It's kind of like what you're talking about too, is like, uh, this is a terrible analogy, but it's the idea of like being a sniper versus like, say an action movie hero where you're just firing your gun off randomly, just shooting it everywhere. Like you're very precision. You know exactly what you want and you're aiming for it and you hopefully will make the mark. 
uh, ver versus like an action hero, like I said, just kind of shooting everywhere and hoping you hit something. Yeah, I don't, I don't actually think that's a terrible analogy, probably because uh, maybe without even knowing it, you got my, my gamer persona pegged because basically anytime I'm playing a shooter, I always choose sniper class. So okay. maybe that says something about me. <laughs> okay, there is a psychological thing there. Uh, but we'll leave that for now. I, I want to switch now to your day job, which includes working on StarTech Discovery. Uh, and there, your job is basically to turn money into light. Can, <laughs> can you explain? That is what you do, right? <laughs> can you yeah, absolutely. Can you explain lighting and contribution that, and what those what it makes to like certain scenes, certain scripts, or certain episodes? Because I think people, the general public, has a, a an awareness of like what the writer does, what the director does, and certainly the actor does. But then things get fuzzier for them after that. You know what I mean? So as somebody who works in light, can you explain what it does and how it contributes to scenes and scripts? Sure. So um, the first thing I should mention is that I, I, I work... Um, you alluded to the fact that, I, that I'm working on Star Trek Discovery right now, which I am. I'm working on the fourth season of that. Um, I work in the, the lighting design team. And that's, that's kind of the job that I do between my own projects. I work in lighting design. I tend to end up working on a lot of American films and television series that shoot here in Toronto because, well, that's the way to get a regular paycheck. And mm -hmm. everybody who works in film usually has a side hustle in this, uh, in this country because it is very, very difficult to make a living as a filmmaker. Correct. So in the case of the work that, that I do for these, again, typically American productions, uh, you know, these things end up having a very large budget for lighting, certainly much more than uh, than any independent films out there. And you you end up stratifying your lighting department into a, into a couple of wings. The side I work on is is known as the as the rigging electric uh, department, and we're the team that um, that primarily designs, builds, and installs electrical systems and like like about somewhere between 70 and 90%, depending on the show, uh, of, the, of the standard lighting being, being built into sets um, and have all that ready to go so that the shooting electrics, who are part of the shooting crew, uh, can come in and then fine-tune everything to camera on the days that they, that they shoot. So the thing about how it works is everything is kind of broken up into, into, into two fashions, and the work that I do tends... By description, it would seem a little more industrial in nature, because oftentimes we are we are designing what would amount in the world that we are working in to industrial lighting, because we are designing lighting systems to be built into sets. So our goal is fundamentally to to design and install things in such a way that that it doesn't feel lit, that it it seems just natural, and people don't think very hard about the lighting, and then that allows you to use then. At some some very key lighting instruments to to then create, you know, your emotional and visual dynamic playing with color and shaping and and lighting tools and various things like that to um to to actually make the scenes kind of sing and a lot of that gets designed to camera when it's when it's in place. I don't know. Did that answer your question or was that way too technical a description no, of the work sense. that I do? Yeah, I mean, you're talking like. For example, like on Star Trek, like you're talking about like some of the consoles and things like that, like certain hallways and things like that would have lights, right? And so you would build those lights in is what you're talking about. I'm getting it correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so in the yes, in the case of Star Trek, we you know, 80% of of uh, of what we shoot is is on on stages uh, because we are primarily in starships of of one faction or another. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, quite a lot of lighting uh, both both um, both practical lighting that is physically built into the set and film lighting that we use to you know to create that that sort of visual and emotional shaping uh, that but all of those are, are fundamentally built into the set before the cameras ever arrive on there and uh, and so so you know my team is a, is a team that does you know the large majority if not all of, of that work in advance and then there's a wholly separate lighting team. We, of course, work together, but, but oftentimes, you know, apart and on other sides of the stages. But then a whole other team that comes in with the rest of the shooting crew, and they do all of the, the small fine-tuning of, of individual lights to the camera to, to, you know, create the visual dynamic that you then see on your screen and gets recorded on, onto the camera. 
it's a lot of work. I think that's the thing. Um, I know sometimes too they'll show you behind the scenes uh, little featurettes and things like that on YouTube uh, for shows complicated like Star Trek Discovery. And I don't think people fully realize how much work kind of goes into all like to making these things. You know what I mean? That's why I was kind of getting you to kind of flesh it out so that people have a better sense of it. Absolutely. I think probably the best way of summing things up is that on the the first season of Star Trek Discovery, there was a set that I was working on that was very complicated from both a design and a lighting standpoint. And I was working on that set and that set alone, getting it ready to shoot on for five and a half months before before they did any amount of shooting on there. Crazy. Like five and a half months. That's like I, I did... I've done shows at the beginning of my career, shorter shows, where the shooting of an entire series of television happened in five months. <laughs> yes. But for Discovery, yeah. I spent, you know, nearly six months working on one set just to get it ready for camera. So you're absolutely right. There's a like it, it is a very visually demanding show in particular. And I think that's to its credit. I don't mean for that to in any way sound like a negative. I mean, it keeps mm-hmm. a lot of us employed, which is which is an excellent thing. Yes. Um, but uh, but is a, is a very complicated, very detailed show in terms of what they want to see on the screen. And there's a lot of there's a, a huge amount of technicians and artists that it takes to to put that together in every department, certainly. But uh, but in ours, like the the lighting design team on on Discovery is bigger than my entire crew on receiver, including prep, production, and post production. So true. yes, yeah. Did having a background as a painter, did that affect your relationship to light and how you approach and view light? I guess a little bit. Um, truth be told, I probably only spent about 10 years painting when I was, uh, when, when I was a teenager, you know, maybe even slightly less than that, probably eight. Um, and a, a lot of what sidetracked me away from painting was the fact that I got so involved in screenwriting in, in high school. Um, and that ended up it, it 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 ate up a lot of oxygen in the room because I spent all of my free time writing, and there was just inherently less time to to paint. Mm-hmm. So what I what I did that sort of became the way of keeping keeping my visual faculties a, a little alert while I was while I was writing, but didn't require quite the same investment of time as 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 you know, oil painting or, or acrylic painting did, uh, was to get into photography. So in my last couple of years of, of high school, you know, so caught up in writing, I then shifted my focus a little bit away from painting and more into photography. And that was probably for me, the, um, the, 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 the bigger earmarker that got me, you know, later interested in, um, in working in, in lighting design. Um, because photography is all is all about light, right? Like mm-hmm. without without light, photography quite simply would not exist. And uh, and and I think you just naturally end up picking up on um, lighting styles and how light operates and how shadows work and how you know the interplay of different light sources can affect the appearance of color, things like that. You just naturally end up picking that up in in photography in a way that you that you don't necessarily by default in, in painting, because in, in painting, you're creating everything yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You, can, you can choose in the way that you um, pictorially realize whatever your, your painted subject is, you can choose absolutely to break every single rule of lighting physics if you want to. And mm-hmm. of course, plenty of excellent paintings have been made that way. I don't want to sound like I'm denigrating that at all. But in the realm of photography, it is it is driven by physics and chemistry certainly back then especially because we were shooting on film so you just you have to you have to make bedfellows with 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 how light operates and so that so that probably more than painting directly was was my way in and uh, and my the beginning of my interest in lighting but i suppose my interest in photography still began in essence with the work that i had done as a as a painter in my early teens so I suppose it's all connected. <laughs> uh, speaking of connected, where can people find you online uh, to see your COVID haircut, uh, to find uh, more information about Receiver, any other projects you have going on? Absolutely. Well, um, so so we're recording this on, on Thursday, November 12th, and Receiver is actually premiering today mm-hmm. uh, at the, Real Asian, uh, the Toronto Real Asian International Film Festival. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's 
great. Real Asian has been an amazing partner thus far. Um, the film streams as part of the uh, the Film Frenzy program. Uh, it's streaming all the way from today, uh, the 12th, all, all the way to November 19th. Um, I'm going to be doing a Q&A with uh, Tare Vajdani, the lead actress uh, in Receiver, on November 15th at 10 a.m., which is available to, for free for all ticket holders. And then for my work out there on the internet, um, people can check me out at my website, which is www.interlockpictures.com. Uh, I am on Facebook and Instagram at Interlock Pictures. And my, uh, my personal noodlings on life in the industry can be found on Twitter mm-hmm. at uh, CCAM Operator. There we go. I think we, we covered quite a bit, didn't we? We covered uh, that you turn money into light. You have uh, an ancient film uh, buried in your fridge, and you created a psychological horror film with Receiver. I think that's uh, we covered quite a bit, didn't we? I think we did. Although I worry that if people are just hearing that description, they're they're based on that alone, they're going to assume that I am mentally unbalanced. That's fine, but you have a girlfriend, so you're not going on Tinder, so you'll be fine. Like, you know what I mean? That's true. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you have that, then you're good. You're covered. But uh, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you as well. This was like a, a lot of fun. This was really enjoyable. Great. Uh, thank you. So, yeah, good luck with the uh, the film festival. And uh, hopefully we can connect in like a year or two when uh, Receiver the Future comes out. And uh, we can kind of hang out at it again. And then uh, you can let me know then if your gaming style has evolved from like Sniper to something else. <laughs> Well, I, I, I definitely will, uh, will, will, will see what I can do. Although I feel like I've been, I've been de- defaulting to playing as a sniper for like years now. I, I, I feel like, I feel like I just, I know my DNA and I'm going to stay in my lane at this point. <laughs> okay. That's a positive point. We can end it there then. Cause you know who you are and that's usually half the battle in this life. And, uh, that's it. Have a good day. All right. Thank you. You too. Yo, that was Kevin Campbell. His psychological horror short is Receiver, and I am Sammy Yunan. I really enjoyed the moment when we were talking about Brian De Palma. De Palma has a fantastic film career, from like Scarface, of course Scarface, to The Untouchables, Carlito's Way, to Carrie, so much more. There's a fantastic 2015 documentary called De Palma we're checking out to see what Kevin and I were saying. It magically appears on streaming services. When it appears, if you haven't checked it out, make a tea and get into it. Speaking of getting into it, I get all into it on social media. My Pal Sammy for Twitter, IG, and Facebook. My Pal Sammy for all three. Please follow me close enough that I can hear your footsteps like a psychological horror movie. And when you do follow me on any of those places, my pal Sammy for all three, reach out and tell me, do you have a favorite Brian De Palma movie? Let me know. Thank you so much for listening to me in the Netflix world. Receiver, yo.